Well, good morning, everybody. But, Darren, we're listening to this in the afternoon. Yeah, well, it's morning, innit, for me, and I'm recording it. It's half past seven. I've had a cup of coffee in bed, and I've got a cup of tea now. Not that you need to know, but I thought, you know, perhaps it'd be nice to sort of position this in my day for you. It's Darren Clarkson Podcast. You know the drill by now. Right, we'll... Excuse me. <coughs> I've got a new phone and a new headset, so if the sound is a bit off, then I can only apologise for it, because I need to figure it out, but it should be alright, you should be able to listen to it. I'm not going to do introductions, you can listen to previous episodes for introductions. We're going to go straight into a comment that somebody posted on the socials asking me to do a podcast about guidebook writing. And I've been out about it for about seven minutes, and I thought, why not? I'll talk a lot of bunkum about putting words on a page. So, we'll start this off with, I never thought I'd write a guidebook. And I've done two of them, and I've got a third one uh, in treatment form at the moment. Uh, and I've submitted work to other guidebooks as well, so I never thought I'd do it. So we're starting this off with the fact that I'm dyslexic. I didn't find that out till I did postgrad study at university, but... Academia is not my thing, don't really like it. Uh, as I've got older, I've realised that the English language has got rules and you've got to follow these rules and if you don't follow these rules then people take the piss out of you and you get called a dunce enough to stand outside the classroom. Right, so I put that in there and I was straight off the bat which might explain a lot of what I then talk about. So how do we go about writing guidebooks? So it starts off with me wanting to write uh, articles for magazines, and the first sort of article for a magazine I can remember writing was, I think, for... I know the article was about the... It's a book review of the Eskimo Diablo, and I think it appeared in Canoeist magazine, because uh, I got the first Diablo in the country off Jan uh, at the Bitches. So it starts off back in the day... And once you've got your name in print, you feel like you're quite a, kind of a big deal. Oh, I did when I was sort of probably about 19. I thought it was a big deal. And then it sort of sits there, and you write club trips, and you write meetings and agendas and all that stuff. <coughs> Excuse me, I've just got a frog in my throat. Oh, thank you for that. Right, so 20, 20 summit years ago... I was in Nepal, the second edition of White Water Nepal had come out, which was Slime's book, Peter Nolte's book. The first edition I'd not seen, had never seen, uh, and that was Dave Allardyce and Peter Nolte's Dave Allardyce. I worked for Dave uh, 20 odd years ago in Nepal, Kiwi adventure entrepreneur, for want of a better uh, name, well, I want to say an entrepreneur, but more like innovator, inspiration, all-round good egg, fixer, logistics maestro, whiskey drinker, and possibly wrote the Bible on how to live your life in an adventurous way, yet still bring a family up. Uh, <coughs> if you don't know who Dave was, then we can perhaps do a podcast on Dave, who sadly passed away a few years back. Uh, lots of people didn't know his. He asked for the vineyard uh, in New Zealand from what I think it was a vineyard. Uh, or could have been sheep rustling. 
we had two separate lives, which is why I don't know about the second one. Right. Let's talk about it. So, anyway, uh, I told Nepal using the second edition of the guidebook. And I used the second edition of the guidebook for a number of years. Things changed, things adapted, things moved on. But I still had my trusty guidebook with me. And I'd write in the margins of that guidebook in pen, pencil, lipstick, whatever, uh, notes <coughs> and adaptions to the book. Right. Now, uh, quite some time later, I got a message off Slime. Just bear with me a second. I got a message off Slime saying... We need to update the guys' book. By we, I think he meant the community, because me and Slime didn't... We weren't a we, you know. We weren't an item. <laughs> Just the fact that even the Slime is an item makes me chuckle. So we were, but I got an email off him saying, we need to uh, update the guidebook. You're the man that's been recommended to me by X, Y, and Z of uh, the Himalayan paddling world. Please, can you help me? So I chatted to Slime, and all, all we really wanted to do with the third edition was put in minor changes, but leave some of it pretty vague, uh, update some of the photos, update the advertisements in it, because the advertisements <coughs> were out of date, there were some brands in there that no longer existed, uh, and Nepal had had a big boom in uh, rafting companies, so we wanted to include those as a sort of call to, this is how far Nepal's developed. Right, so... <coughs> The money then went for the advertisements and all that sort of stuff pretty much went back into training guides in Nepal. So that I jokingly say it paid my mortgage. It probably paid one mortgage payment uh, and I probably got a dry top out of it and a set of paddles. Did I get a boat out of it? I think I got a boat out of it as well uh, from Piranha. I, think I was team Piranha at the time of writing it. I'm just sort of thinking back. Yeah, I was Team Piranha at the time of writing it. Well, I was transitioning between having no sponsor and then Team Piranha. So I got a couple of boat, a boat off Piranha and then I got a team boat. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So that's... Uh, but that was out of the advertising space. So I didn't get rich off it. So one of the first hurdles we had with Whitewater and Paul, third edition, was the first and second editions had been written on glass printing plates. Uh, so that means that when you've got a word like and on a line, there's five characters because there's a space, three-letter space. So you've got five characters there. Now, because it was written on the glass printing plates, we had to make sure that every line of uh, every paragraph had the same number of characters in. So if we were changing a sentence, we had to make sure that <coughs> the sentence scanned the same and didn't drop into the next line or the previous line. Which caused us some editorial issues. Then it also caused us some descriptive issues because you couldn't take a paragraph out. Because if you took a paragraph out, it moved all the text up or down the page because the page only had so many character spaces. So it moved it up and down the page. So we, we made the sort of editorial decision that we would l often leave in fibs. Not, well, not fibs, but we'd, we'd leave in uh, vague suggestions because we couldn't work out how to 
take a paragraph out or add a paragraph. Uh, sometimes, in order, it's like when it came to the Kalagandaki, where there's a section, a huge section missing because of the dam, we had to leave that section in the guidebook and put a sentence. We basically lost a sentence of the description to put a sentence in that said the following description is no longer valid. It's pretty much words, words like that. So that <coughs> we didn't lose a page of text because we couldn't lose a page of text because it would knock all the book out. Now, that was our first issue we had. Our second issue we had was Nepal is rapidly, rapidly developing, and there's no pun intended there, uh, but the roads change regularly because as villages and communities want vehicle access, roads get put into their uh, villages and they become from villages to towns pretty quickly. So what was, even five years ago, <coughs> a drive, uh, not a drive, sorry, a walk into a river, now becomes a drive into a river. And then you've got uh, the civil unrest that was happening at the time so lots of areas were a little closed off and we have to explore those and then you've got rivers that never really get done that needed to be put in so that's a massive mammoth task for a retired white water legend and a boy idol dyslexic Yorkshireman okay so <clears throat> obviously you enlist the help of the white water community which was another challenge because Characters are inherently lazy, I think, and we don't often take notes, unlike climbers. So, if you look in the back of the Whitewater Guidebook, uh, each edition has a list of contributors, and the third edition is longer than it is in the others because A, there's more rivers in it, uh, and B, more people have paddled and updated on those rivers. Now, I, I'm a big fan of people knowing people within the community by the nicknames, so obviously, people know me as Daz. So that's referenced. So there's people in the contributors <laughs> list who are named by their nicknames, not by their full names, which is really cool. And there's also a few inside jokes in there, which is also really amazing. There, speaking of inside jokes, there's a vivid in the guidebook called the Shangri Cola, uh, which is possibly the best inside joke of any guidebook ever. Because uh, I'm just going to leave it at that for you. Right, so that's that's how it worked. So we we ended up getting loads of contributions from people, <coughs> and then you've got to add those contributions into the already existing text that you have and move it around. I'm really sorry, guys. I've got a glass of water. Uh, <coughs> I've got a bit of a throg in my throat. Right, so we can, you move all that around. But there's some rivers that are not commercially done very often, or they've not been done for 20 years. Uh... Rivers like the Kaimaikola, uh, which I ended up for first descending before it got hydroed. Uh, after the book was published, actually, uh, we, put, we put a thing in the description saying this river possibly goes, this is how you get to it now, this is the road access, you know, this is, this is how you're going to do it. And nobody had done it, so me and Christoph Williams uh, went in with uh, Andrew Rye and did it after the guidebook was published. And then the book sort of got edited. And it got edited by a number of people. Some people edited it for content, some people edited it for language, and some people edited it for space. 
uh, which are the ones that ended up, we ended up putting commas. Like sometimes we use the Oxford comma, and sometimes we wouldn't because obviously it gives us character differences. Sometimes we'd use American spelling for colour, for example, because we'd lose a letter, and we could do that on a line. And so it was a bit of a a bit of an arduous task, and we took that into Nepal. So it took a couple of a couple of years to sort of get to that stage. But by the time we got to the stage of it going to the printers, the stuff we'd written about road access would have, may have changed, or the stuff we'd written about internal flights may have changed, or permits may have changed, but we sort of couldn't address that because it might change back because it's Nepal. Like a really good example of Nepal at the moment is Nepal's just banned independent trekkers. Uh, all trekkers need guides now. That's a, that's brand new. So any guidebook about trekking in Nepal now is, is redundant because it won't have that in. Except before the COVID pandemic, it also had that rule and then the rule got changed. So Nepal's pretty f- fluid with its... Uh, permit systems and obligations in that respect. So you've got to take it with a little pinch of salt. <coughs> right, excuse, bear with me a second, I'm really sorry. Oh, terribly sorry, guys. Right, and then it basically got sent to the printers. Now, Pawan, Pawan was an amazing printer. He lives in uh, Kathmandu. And the book was printed in Kathmandu, and chosen to print it in Kathmandu, because... That's where the the money was going early. It was going to the guides. It was going through the Nepalese River Guide Association, and it was going to our partners at Himalaya Map House. Uh, they were the ones that did the topo maps. They were the ones that distributed it, uh, even distributed it into uh, other countries. Uh, they were amazing. And Himalaya Map House actually print Lonely Planet, the pl- uh, Rough Guide, and stuff like that. So it's it was a really good choice for it to get printed out there. Obviously, the the first run that we got off were, and this is amazing, were all hand-stitched spines. A hand-stitched spine on a modern book is just an insanely beautiful thing. So I've, I think I've still got a, hand, a couple of hand-stitched copies. Uh, but then it got, obviously, bound and glued like a modern book. But the, the hand-stitched and glued is just, it's just a piece of craftsmanship. Uh, and some of those are available... Uh, Every now and then you'll, you'll see them pop up at like Waterstones or Border Books if the bookshops like that still exist. Because I think Cardi ended up with some uh, stitched ones. Anyway, so it got it got done. And during the course of it getting done, there was some editorial decisions made by the printers that we had no choice over. And I think that was down to spacing again. Uh, but it is what it is. Okay. The fun part for me... Uh, of doing that book, the White Water Nepal book, the fun was the photographs because we, me and Slime, spent. I was going to say we spent hours. We didn't. We spent minutes, but we took hours over the decisions. Uh, I went over to see Slime in the lakes, and we sat and we had pie and chips and a drink, and we looked at transparencies, and we looked at Polaroids, and we looked at digital images, and. Whilst it's really cool to keep having modern photos in a modern guidebook with the modern designs, they date anyway. Like modern design boats date a date a book. 
you know. So we made the decision pretty quickly to not be held back by a modern image. So lots of the images in the book ended up as dated images because they relate to the stories in the book. Are they related to the contributors in the book? Are they related to the first descents in the book, etc.? So there's some photos in the new book that have still got composite boats in, like old, uh, like the Sun Cozy boats from uh, the first Sun Cozy trip uh, from the border, uh, Tibet border all the way to India. There's some photos of those boats in. There's photos of one of the really, really early Sun Cozy raft expeditions, which would have been the late 80s, mid-80s, I guess. And uh, <coughs> there's photos like that. And they're, they're obviously photos taken from transparencies. You can see the sort of colour mix and the sort of hairs in the gate and that sort of stuff. Not that you've got a gate on a transparency, but you know what I mean. So that's quite nice. I like that. And then the book went out. And the minute the book went out, some people went, this is not really an update on the second edition. It's still got a lot of the same stuff in. And we went, yeah, we know. Because uh, it's principally designed, rather than just a reprint of the second edition, it's a, a, like a 2.5, almost. Because we could have just reprinted the second edition, but that wouldn't have benefited anybody at grassroots level financially, or sponsors, or any of that. So it's like a 2.5... Uh, with additional rivers, with additional text, and with some stuff taken out. So that was it. Anyway, that, that was that. Done. Nobody, nobody made any money on it, really. And it's still around. And it's still a really good resource. Now, Nepal's adapting and changing and moving at a remarkable level. So, just like all guidebooks, you need to take it as a guide. It's not Bible, is it? Not that we... Oh, any other religious text. It's a guide, because... River grading, as we know, is pretty subjective anyway. So, <clears throat> excuse me, for me, you know, like a a bouncy, big veed, powerful river, I can call class two because it's just shaded a little down the middle. The waves might be ten foot high, but there's no line. There's no, like, move to make. You just sit on the line. Uh, but if paddles are coming from, like, the UK, for example, where we've got narrow, shallow rivers, then they get a bit freaked out by the grading. But the grading's the same, you know, for international grading, except well, it's all a bit subjective. So that's one thing to look at when you look at guidebooks. The second thing to look at is guidebooks are often written by people that know the rivers well. So the things that they don't necessarily notice because they know the rivers well are maybe the things that you notice as a first-timer. So just be aware of that. Nothing is going to beat local knowledge. So even if you've got a guidebook, and this goes for any guidebook in the world, uh, even if you've got a guidebook, it's always best to get local knowledge, whether that be a guiding company or asking local boaters or asking strangers on the internet. That's my favourite thing at the moment. Ask strangers on the internet an opinion about you, who is also a stranger on the internet. Oh, no. Oh, bloody hate it. Anyhow... That's the White Water Nepal guidebook. And I, f I flew a load of copies back from Nepal. And Nepal, they don't like you flying books back, but I think I had 50 of them in a duffel bag. But they didn't like it. Uh, anyway, so that was white, that's White Water Nepal. Pretty plain and simple. Then, off the back of that, uh, I updated some stuff 
And I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, that's it. Welsh Rivers. I ended up putting a power. I ended up putting a chapter in the Welsh Rivers. Uh, Chris Ladin Tomlow's Patrick Crisol's book. I uh, put a chapter in there about Welsh boating. I'm trying to think what else we did. We did a small, really small, almost pamphlet book to Whitewater Ladakh, the rivers of Ladakh. Now this was prompted by Himalayan Maphouse. So Himalayan Maphouse messaged me and said, have you got any guidebook that fits on this many pages at this size? <laughs> because they have a range of books uh, of the from the Himalaya that are like pocket trekking and pocket heritage books, you know, for sightseeing and stuff like that. Put them in your pocket, quick reference books, which is a bit of a throwback from pre-internet days. I mean, now I'm pretty sure people just go on, you know, TripAdvisor or... You know, Google where they're going. But it was sort of the throwback to the pre internet days, pocket sized books, uh, with space in the margins for notes. So I was living in a camp, like a, a rafting camp on the banks of the Indus in Ladakh, and we banged out the, me and saying shot out, we banged out a really quick uh, guidebook to the rivers of Ladakh using the rivers knowledge that we had, Chotak's a local Ladakhi boy. Uh, Internet searches, local knowledge, all the stuff that I've just talked about. So we, we did that, sent that off to Himalayan Map House. Himalayan Map House printed it in a series of books. So as a whitewater guidebook, it doesn't seem very spectacular. But as part of the series for Himalayan Map House, it completes their series because it just brings together the heritage, the trekking, and the. Uh, rivers all together in the series and it's pretty nice but you know on a bookshelf when they're all together all color coded it's just a very nice little product so that was at the white water ladakh during the course of all this i think prior to white water nepal i'd written riding the tears of everest which was pretty much an ego driven project vanity project although urban fox published it which was nice and i got a bit of money off it uh, a bit of money off the back of that which was about kayaking the dud cozy in the iron and I learned a lot doing that book. Now, after I did the solo Everest trip, uh, the solo Iron Dud, and I'd paddled in Pakistan and Tibet and various other places, I reissued the Riding the Tears of Everest. Again, Himalayan Map House did that for us. So I reissued that and added in a report on the solo trip, because uh, the original book was just on the the early descents so I did in the solo trip and the word I, I love the fact that the wording on the solo trip was 8,848 words 8,848 which is the height of Everest and I did that on purpose so there's a little bit of uh, linguistic onanism going on but I quite like it because it's all onanism isn't it and that was that one so that uh, what, so what we have now we've got a couple of guidebooks out there. We've got a chapter in a book. We've got a lot of help, a lot of pamphlets. A lot of articles get done now. And then. Well, I say a lot of articles. Articles get done now and then. Uh, last article has just gone to print, actually, for Paddler Magazine. Hey! It's an editorial, which is quite, quite nice when you... You know, I look back at the sort of teenage me with that Eskimo Diablo review. and I think I called it a spud on steroids. 
you see, I look back at that with you, you know, from all those years ago. Now I'm 47 and had hearing and teeth falling out, pretty much beaten from years of ever living. And I think how far these words have come. And if it inspires people, that's a good thing. Now, on the the sort of back burner here is a running guidebook. And people know that I do a bit of running because I sort of found a passion for it. And it's not really a passion, I bloody hate it. Uh, I keep DNF in racing, well I don't DNF, I keep like hurting a lot on big events, uh, which is stupid really because they're all like uh, more than marathon distance and it's just painful. But there is a sort of embryo, embryotic, that's a good word, that, there's an embryotic uh, treatment in place for, for running buck in Britain, which is why I'm out running a lot. And that might come to fruition, it might not. There's... Oof, is it worth me to... It'd be nice to do, you know, other little books now and then, but it's a matter of time and can I really be arseness? And that's it, I think. I hope I've covered how you write guidebooks. A lot of it is down to goodwill, uh, really, and the fact that just accept that it all changes. And then when you've written the guidebook, you should then mock people mercilessly for using the guidebook, uh, and especially using it as... You know, as fact, because it's not, it's a fluid document. And the, the advent of the internet, I think, has helped the fluidity because paper guidebooks are really not as popular. I mean, as a kid, you'd get paper guidebooks all the time. But as we get older, the internet has sort of taken its place in a lot of respects because things can be edited and adapted super quick on the internet uh, in forums and stuff, which is not a bad thing. But yeah, guidebooks, always take them with a little pinch of salt and they are guides only. Uh, especially, what, what they're really good at is guidebooks, for the most part, is telling you where the puttings and takeouts are, you know, and the time of year to go, and roughly what to expect. You could probably summarise every river in the world in a paragraph. Uh, you know, for example, the Ogwin, you could put, a, start A5, park at the lay-by near the campsite, That'd, that'd be like, get on at Ogwin Bank Falls or below the rapid, which is called Gun Barrel. It is now class 3, 4 and a little bit harder at higher floors. Watch out for wood, watch out for fences. Take out when you hit the sea. I mean, that'd cover the Ogwin, wouldn't it? Because uh, then people can look back and go, well, I don't want to take it out of the sea, and then look back onto the A5 and see where they really want to take out. I jest, obviously. I jest. Right. I better do some uh, real work and not just podcasty stuff, of which I've got another one this afternoon, but it's not for you listeners. It's not for the Darren Clarks and Whitewater podcast. Yay! It's for something else completely. So I won't even link that into a social. But thanks for listening, gang. Have a great day.